Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So welcome. Third episode. We've made it this far. Back from your international travels. Yeah, really nice to be here in London again. I've had quite a stressful week, I've got to say. Yesterday, our youngest daughter went to university. Me and Yvette packed the car with her, took her there, dropped her off and... Uh, Something about the final kid leaving the nest. It's a big day, actually, quite hard. And I called you. You had been left in the car whilst Yvette and your daughter were in Holford's buying a bike. Buying a bike, first day of university, bit of a cliche. Whether she'll actually ride it, I've no idea, but she's got a bike, so there she is. Well, I've got to uh, stuff my car full of my daughter's stuff and uh, get us to her university later today. So You've been allowed to... to as well? Well, it's pretty much the first time <laughs> many, many a year I've been allowed to turn up. So um, we've got to get on with it. In that case, we've got to talk about Suella Braverman's speech in the US about immigration and the UN Refugee Convention, which has been um, pretty controversial the last 24 hours, particularly amongst Conservative MPs. Right, and then the big topic in politics are the party conferences that are coming up. We're going to spend some time looking at whether these party conferences actually matter. The Conservatives heading to Manchester. Expectations, are they quite low for this conference, given the run-up? Or is this the big moment we're going to see the real Rishi? And then we are going to talk about something like we always do, which people haven't quite noticed. It's not been big in the media in the last 24 hours, but we think it's actually quite a significant thing. And that actually was the story in the Financial Times yesterday, suggesting that Andy Burnham the mayor of Greater Manchester, is up for doing a deal over um, HS2 and HS3, which is interesting and a shift and may make things a little bit easier for Rishi Sunak. We will find out. So earlier this week, the Home Secretary, Suella Bradman, she gave a speech at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a Republican think tank 
in Washington, in which she basically said that multiculturalism had failed over the last 20 years, there had been too much immigration, and in particular the asylum system had broken, and she called for a rewriting of the rules. But she also said some pretty controversial things about gay people, and she used some language which conservative MPs, among others, have said was just not acceptable. Let's hear a clip. Where individuals are being persecuted, it is right that we offer sanctuary. But we will not be able to sustain an asylum system if, in effect, simply being gay or a woman or fearful of discrimination in your country of origin is sufficient to qualify for protection. Personally, I thought it was a pretty awful speech, I have to say. And um, it's not just me saying that. Lots and lots of Conservative MPs on the record saying that this is um, the wrong place for the Conservative Party to be positioning itself. And just to be clear, if you're the Home Secretary right now, of course you should be talking about the challenges of immigration and how you manage to control it. And of course we should have a debate about how the world's changed. When the Refugee Convention was established in the 50s, it was a very different world. There wasn't mobile phones, there weren't trafficking gangs, there wasn't migration on this scale, and the government is struggling to deal with it, and so will you know any party. And finding ways in which we can change the system to make it better is a good conversation. But for her to highlight, as she did in this speech, lesbian and gay people, and to make it sound, as we heard from that clip, like that is the issue. People who are seeking asylum for discrimination because of their sexuality, according to the Home Office, it's less than 2% of cases. And their chance of success is about the same as for any other type of asylum application. A third of people don't get their case heard. Why does the Home Secretary choose to highlight a small minority issue as if that is the thing which is driving the whole asylum problem. And I think the answer is politics. I mean, Lizzie Dearden from The Independent was um, on Twitter yesterday saying that Sweller's speech has been all over the right-wing um, websites. She said, spreading on far-right telegram groups like Wildfire. That's why Conservative MPs are upset, because this is just playing to fears people have and tapping into a particular political demographic of people who can be wound up because somehow they think it's sort of a, it is gay people trying to storm their way into our country. I mean, it's just awful. So I think it's easy to say she shouldn't be using language like, uh, you know, it's, things are a toxic mix or there's an existential crisis to Western civilization, or she shouldn't be potentially highlighting the issues of gay and lesbian people claiming asylum. I think in some ways that's too easy, and it's too easy on people like me who have quite liberal views on this. I think she is raising some real questions. She's raising real questions about an open-ended asylum pledge, essentially, that developed countries have made to the undeveloped world. She's pointing out that the definition of a refugee has dramatically changed from someone fleeing for their life 70 years ago to someone who may fear some kind of discrimination in their own country, of which, of course, sadly, there are many. And she's also pointing out that, you know, the international cooperation on this has broken down. So I think it's too easy to point to the language which I don't approve of that she's using. And I think it, it she is not only doing the job of a Home Secretary in trying to point to the real challenges she's got managing the migration system, she's also putting a marker down for all parties, not just... Uh, you know, a leadership bid within the Conservative Party, but also to the Labour Party, that this is an issue 
all are going to have to address. Look, it's a totally legitimate debate to talk about how we can make our asylum system work better and how do we control migration. No Home Secretary would be doing their job unless they were leading that debate. But that isn't what she's doing. This is playing politics. And uh, yeah, but Ed, you can, you're allowed to do several things with a speech as a politician, as you well know. You can make a legitimate set of policy points. You can also stake your position in your own party and you can lay down dividing lines with the opposition and you can do all of those things in one speech and that's a really good political speech if you do all those things. And by the way, she'd be probably thrilled we're still talking about her speech on the other side of the world two or three days later. But she's the Home Secretary. She has a responsibility for the cohesion of our country. She has a responsibility not to be winding up far-right websites um, she has a responsibility to try and bring our country together rather than to divide it. And, you know... Isn't it too easy to say these views are only the views of the far right? I suspect a lot of the things she says, if you polled, it would be pretty uncomfortable for liberal opinion. A great majority of people in Britain would quite possibly agree with. And it's a kind of absolute classic problem. I'd say, you know, it's a, it's a problem, as I say, for people like me who are quite liberal-minded on immigration and have been... You know, had our fingers burnt on things like the Brexit referendum. And it's a problem for centre-left parties like Labour, who frankly, I think, sometimes get mildly embarrassed by the views of their own supporters in the kind of industrial heartlands of the North. Look, I am all for tough controls on migration. I don't think you can sustain political support for an open economy unless you manage your borders. And of course, the government's got a problem because they're not managing our borders very well and not just small boats, but... You know, last year, record levels of migration, partly because of asylum, because of people coming from Ukraine and from Hong Kong, but also huge numbers of economic migrants coming with visas legally to our country. And there is a, a legitimate debate, but you've got a responsibility as Home Secretary not to use this as a political football in a way which is divisive and, in my view, nasty. And let's be honest, she's stepping outside the collective responsibility of the cabinet here, when she is alluding to changing the UN regime, when she's um, uh, um, alluding to leading the the um, ECHR, that is not the policy position of the government as I understand it. When Enoch Powell made his speech in 1968, um, he was sacked as shadow defence secretary because of what he said. It seems as though it seems as though is able to keep her job, even though she's you, stepping outside what on, is accepted as collective responsibility. You can't compare this speech to the Rivers of Blood speech. I think the motive, which is about dividing for a political purpose, there is a parallel. See, I think the interesting thing about Swella is that she's consistently disappoints the people who vest in her things that she never really believes in. So when she arrived in Parliament in 2015, I remember she was a new MP. She was called then Suella Fernandez, her maiden name. And we in the kind of Cameroon wing of the Tory party thought, great, we've got this new Cameroon moderniser, woman of Indian origin, elected in a quite uh, kind of, uh, you know, white seat, if you like, on the south coast of England near Portsmouth. And of course, she immediately establishes herself as one of the most right-wing people in the Tory party. So a bit of a disappointment to the Cameroons. And then, you know, it turns out she's gone on a European study programme called the Erasmus programme, which loads of people who've never been on the Erasmus programme want to keep. She's been on it. And she wants to scrap it and she wants to leave the EU. And of course, you know, the classic thing that really winds up your uh, editorial writers in The Guardian and The Independent, like, you know, she's a person of, uh, comes from an ethnic minority and she's the person saying there's too much immigration and there's a sort of special place in hell 
for those kind of people in uh, liberal Britain. So, you know, I, I think she, she's her own person. I think she's established quite, it's not my brand of politics. I don't agree with the language she's using. But she's established herself as a really serious contender to be the next leader of the Tory party, which interestingly at the moment is a field of three women, all right, at the moment is Penny Mordaunt, Kemi Badenoch, and Suela Fernandez. And uh, it's going to be quite a contest if there's a vacancy. Choosing to single out gay people when they are less than 2% of asylum claims is um, just divisive politics. That's a bit I don't like. I guess the question is, what is Rishi Sunak up to here? And why is he allowing this to occur? I mean, in the past, when people have challenged collective responsibility in this way, they've lost their jobs. They haven't stayed in the cabinet beyond a reshuffle. Is he tolerating this? Does he actually think there's an advantage to him in having her say these things? Well, I think he wanted to fire Suella as Home Secretary quite early on in his premiership, in his first uh, look at a reshuffle at the beginning of the year. I think he thought about firing her just before the summer. I think now, because... Frankly, the economic attack on Labour is not really landing. The immigration attack looks like a quite attractive route. And she is an outrider for that. She's also, frankly, now, I think, too powerful for him to move her. And, of course, this is all a good uh, curtain raiser to the party conference, the Tory party conference, which starts in Manchester next week. An outrider as Home Secretary. That's quite an unusual thing to happen. But, you know, we'll look forward to her speech next week. Right, the party conferences are coming up. Ed, are you going to Labour this year? No, I've not been for a few years, but uh, I went every year for 20 years from 1994 all the way through to... Um, Me 20, too. Until 2014. I didn't know this actually, but the very first conference I ever went to was the Labour Party conference in 1994. Tony Blair's Clause 4 speech. And I think one of the things about being in opposition is it is the biggest moment of the year for the opposition because the speech from the leader, all the media is there. They are being taken seriously on policy, big set-piece moment. Actually, the following year in 1995, if you remember, the O.J. Simpson trial verdict was announced on the same afternoon as Tony Blair's speech. Complete disaster because what did the BBC do? I think Alistair Campbell persuaded them to have Who's a little... He? Um, Alistair Campbell was at the time Tony Blair's spin doctor. I wonder what he's up to these days. But anyway, who knows? He persuaded um, the BBC to do a little bit of Tony Blair at the top. But actually, you don't want to be blown out on your big moment. In government, it's a bit different. Because in government, you have the budget, the Queen's speech. You can always bring out a podium in Downing Street. But despite that, there is something about the conference when you're in government, which is particularly important because it's like everything accelerates. You know, the mood is captured. You've got everybody in the room with you, all the media. And therefore, if things are going well, off you go. But if things are going badly, it can be a very think, difficult day. I think there's also a difference. I mean, by the way, I was, the reason I was at the uh, Labour Party conference back then was I was the official Conservative Party observer at the Labour conference, which I have to say is a candidate for the, one of the worst jobs in history. But uh, although it's not What as, did you observe? Well, back in 1994, the main job I had, this is all pre-internet, was to get hold of the physical copy of Tony Blair's speech and Gordon Brown's speech and get them back to Number 10 Downing Street as quickly as possible. And the way I did that was get the paper copy, go to the BT stand in the exhibitors hall, lots of companies come and have exhibitions there, and put it on a fax machine, direct to Number 10. That was the most important thing I had to get right that week. Although actually the thing which you would have done is gone to fringe meetings and try and record 
people being loosened off the cuff and kind of revealing how they were. Didn't Francis Maud get into terrible trouble by saying something at one of those fringe meetings? Well, that's what I should have been doing, Ed. But (laughs) (laughs) as you can see from the result of the 1997 general election a couple of years later, I failed miserably. Sack the observer. Well, I tell you what's interesting. I also went to the Liberal Democrat conferences at the time, and they were really chippy about this conservative. And I would have like all these people... I, mean, I was only in my early 20s. They, they, you know, these Liberal Democrats would take life very seriously and uh, have a go at me as if I was somehow responsible for the major government. Whereas the Labour Party were much more friendly and said, oh, come on, come and have a beer. And, and what you, you observe is there's quite a difference. Is you know, The Labour movement is sort of steeped in the history and it's you know, obviously closely linked to the trade union movement. The Conservative Party is a series of individual conservative associations around the country, and it's, of course, got its famous leaders from the past. It's really only the party conference when the Tory party turns up as an institution. And so for, I think in, in the conservative family, it's, a, it's, a, it's the only moment the family gets together. And so it is really important. And I think whether you're in opposition or in government, if you screw up your conference, it's a herald of a very bad year ahead. You also burn the candle at both ends. I always knew for my time when I was a young advisor, the moment you knew you were in trouble is if you hadn't left the bar in the hotel when the breakfast television teams were already setting up the equipment for the morning BBC breakfast broadcast, and which they used to do live from the conferences. If you were still going... At 4am, you need to get to bed because, you know, you're going to be in trouble. That's how I used to enjoy. It's not the the coolest way to spend your 20s, but that's what I used to do. Of course, once you're actually, you know, the chancellor or the shadow Mm -hmm. chancellor, as I was, you do have to be a bit more disciplined. You have to get yourself to bed and... and Preserve your voice. Preserve your voice. That's the I used to be terrified I'd lose my voice before the conference. And um, I used to spend hours in our hotel room. We'd have an ironing board set up and then a huge box of paper. And that was simulating the speech podium. And then you'd get lots of people to come in and sit there and just rehearse the speech and see if they laughed at the right moments and clapped at the right moments. And when somebody came in and saw you standing behind an ironing board in a T-shirt, thought, what the hell is going on? But that was conference speech preparation. I I spent a huge amount of time on my conference speech and I used to write the party leaders conference speech for many years. Um, One of the main jobs was trying to keep people like Geoffrey Archer back in the day from coming to the leaders suite at about midnight. With a joke. With a joke. And and, or stop David Davis popping by with his thoughts on the speech. So, but look, these are all the kind of anecdotes of party conference life, but they do form a very important moment in the political calendar as uh, you were just saying, Ed. And I think for a governing party, and it's unusually this year we've got the Conservatives going first, they've got to achieve several things. You know, it's a big platform for Rishi Sunak. It's actually his first conference speech as party leader. It may feel like the tail end of a long period of Tory government, but this is his first speech, so he's got to introduce himself, which he has not yet successfully done, I think, to the British electorate, according to the opinion polls. He's got to show that the Conservative Party still have some ideas left in them, It's a really important task for a governing party at a party conference. And above all, I think he's got to show that he can can run the ship because his single biggest claim to the premiership, indeed the reason why he is the party leader, is that he is the person who is going to restore order to the Conservative movement and good sort of sense to government. So it means he's got to avoid Theresa May 2017. She'd called the election, which had gone badly, steps up for her conference speech. If you remember, she lost her voice... She was given a P45 by an audience member. It ended up with 
the letters on the backdrop behind her falling off during her speech. I mean, the thing about those conference speeches, they can be great moments of leadership, but they can also be metaphors for a premiership which is going wrong. Yes, and but they're also, I, I was in the uh, audience, one of the people who gave the many uh, standing ovations to Ian Duncan Smith when his leadership at the Tory party oh, was... the Quiet Man Conference the speech. The Quiet Man Conference speech. Didn't that basically destroy him? Well, I think he was destroyed before the conference, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> was, he hit the uh, final nail in his own coffin. There, 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 there was the, I was a whip at the time, and uh, I used to just report back to the whips, everyone wants to get rid of the leader. Which, and then, uh, and then you, but you, of course, there are moments when people in trouble turn things around at the conferences. Mm. I mean, I remember I was on the receiving end of this, but Gordon Brown's speech, you will, of course, remember this, No Time for a Novice, that was, you know, a huge intervention in 2008 in the middle of the financial crisis and bought him at least another couple of years. It did. It was a turning point. And actually, I'm not sure if I've ever talked about this before, but actually that line, um, I had been at a dinner the night before. So Gordon's conference speech had been written for weeks. There's a whole team in there, final rehearsals. And uh, I wasn't there. I'd gone for dinner with The Sun newspaper. And I was sitting with Rebecca Wade, the editor of The Sun, about 10 people around the table. And she just said, you know, tell me what's going on. And I was talking about the challenge God was facing, the financial crisis, all of these things. And she suddenly said, stop, stop, she said, that's the line. And I said, what? Because I didn't actually know what I'd said. I was just talking. She said, that's the line. This is no time for a novice. She said, if Gordon Brown says that in his speech tomorrow, I promise you that will be the headline in every newspaper. That's the line. And I thought, well, maybe she's right. And I was slightly embarrassed that I you know, hadn't quite realised I'd said it. So the next morning, 8am, I went into Gordon's hotel suite and they were all there rehearsing. And I said, I've got a line. And I was at dinner last night with the son and I think this will work. I said, this is no time for a novice. And Gordon said, that's the line. And I'm all in favour of apprenticeships. But let me tell you, this is no time for a novice. And what I remember was Ed Miliband being particularly enthusiastic. And that was kind of interesting because, of course, this is no time for a novice. It wasn't only a pop at David Cameron. It was also a pop at David Miliband, who just a month before had been supposedly challenging Gordon Brown. This is the same conference where he's caught in a lift by a BBC journalist saying, um, I can't say anything about Gordon Brown because it would be my Michael Heseltine moment, which caused him huge embarrassment at the time. So this is no time for a novice, was not just a pop at David Cameron, but also at David Miliband. Keep the experienced guy, Gordon Brown, in charge. And Ed Miliband thought it was a great line. It was a, pre you know, well, a precursor well, of things to come. To, to quote Michael Hestein, you're telling us no time for a novice was not Brown's, it was Ball's. <laughs> well, and of course, Rebecca Brooks, once again, proving that she's been running the country, in fact, for the last 20 years. Well, what can I say? Um, dinner with the sun. I mean, of course, when you're at conference, you do spend a huge amount of time, particularly with the media. They all come down, the editors, the Rupert Murdoch party used to happen on the Tuesday night normally. So there's always a lot of intrigue. But that's the first... Um, the only time where um, I would say a, a, a newspaper editor kind of had that kind of um, influence. It was my line, but she spotted it. So by the time I was, uh, you know, reached the top of politics, we had to go and see Rupert Murdoch rather than the other way around. Of course, news that uh, Rupert Murdoch has just stepped down as chairman of well, news. Kind of in inadvertent commas, stepped down. He's I mean, chairman has, emeritus. Has, has he really stepped down? This really? is uh, Brian Cox style really? stepping down. But, you know, it was very important to try and get the Murdoch newspapers, which had backed 
Labour for many, many years to support us. And David Cameron and I would go and speak to him and speak to members of his family. On one occasion, we were in his uh, swimming pool, if this is not confirming too many cliches about the uh, closeness you of politics. You were in Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool? In Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool. And um, on. one, of the, one of the young Cameron children, very young Cameron children, did a little poo in the pool. And thankfully, Rupert hadn't seen it. And um, Dave and I looked at each other and said, this is, this is our election chance. It's going down the drain. And so, or not going down the drain. Or it was not floating, going, was it? was it? floating. So we just had to pick it up and throw it away. And whose hand was it which dipped into the water and grasped the turd? Well, the Cameron Osborne partnership was incredibly tight and we keep those things secret. Oh, come on. Was it, <laughs> Cameron, was it Cameron's Cameron, dainty hand? Cameron knew how to shovel his own shit. That was why the partnership worked. Well, And there we go. And, and I have never <laughs> been in Rupert Murdoch's swimming pool. What can I say? Well, that's that's why you lost in 2010. <laughs> However, there was um, one conference which kind of went the other way, which was the year before the 2007 conference, which um, Labour went in stormingly ahead in the polls, Gordon Brown's first conference as Prime Minister. And he and we allowed the whole conference to become a debate about whether there was going to be an early election. And going into that conference, it was never Gordon's intention to have an early election, but there was all the speculation. It wasn't closed down. I um, did the world this weekend on the Sunday and made some reference to um, the manifesto pledges being things which would be debated in the coming weeks and months and then got slapped down by the number 10 press operation because apparently I was pouring cold water on the idea of the early election. So they were allowing this to occur. And... Um, we ended the conference, I think, in a strong position, but actually there was a sense on the inside that we'd slightly lost control of the agenda. Well, I tell you, if you were on the receiving end, as I was, it felt you know, like uh, we were on the edge of a precipice because Labour was 14 points ahead in the polls. There was about to be this general election. We weren't remotely prepared. And that was the conference where David Cameron gave his speech without notes and I made the pledge that uh, we'd increase the inheritance tax threshold to a million pounds if we were elected. And it had an electric effect. It's a funny thing because obviously um, it's one of my biggest moments in my political career, but it hung over us for years afterwards and it still hangs over the Tory party today, which is where's the next big promise like that you can deliver at a party conference that changes politics, changes the polls in the way that that did. It also hangs then. over in, in a different way though, because um, it was an electric moment. I mean, it was ridiculous. And I don't know why Labour let that happen. Because the truth was, the benefits of your policy were going to go to a tiny percentage. Ah, but this is this is the classic, you're falling into the Labour trap here of not understanding aspiration in Britain. But, but, but however, however, I said at the time, a few of us said to Gordon Brown and Asta Darling, let them do it. I said, if we go through a whole election campaign in which this is scrutinised day by day, how are they going to pay for it? Who benefits? We can win this. But as you said, it knocked Labour sideways. And you know, in the end, Gordon Brown didn't call the election. By the time we got to the 2010 election, George, in which you still had a pledge to abolish inheritance tax, you never mentioned it once in the campaign because you knew by then yeah, that it was Gordon the opposite had... of aspiration. It was the opposite but of aspiration. Brown, it was Gordon... going to be for the privileged few. That's what you knew. Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling had, of course, nicked half the policy, which actually made their problem even worse by saying that you could uh, transfer between a husband and wife. You threshold. had a commitment to go further and you never mentioned it because you knew it was a brilliant piece of politics on that Monday. Brilliant. But you knew in the end it was an election loser. It's interesting it's come back now 
there's a lot of pressure on Rishi Sunak at the party conference to potentially announce an inheritance tax. Yeah, and by he's the got way, the Osborne problem though. The Osborne problem is if he says now that I'm going to do something on inheritance tax, everybody will say, well, you know, they'll say that's what George Osborne said before. And when it came to it, you know, it was something said in desperation when you think you're going to lose. When it actually came to the crunch, you won the election well, in 2010, we, you didn't do it. We did end up saying that if you'd also put your house into inheritance, anyway, consult your tax you advisor. You didn't do it. Because you can get a million pounds. Rishi Sunak's You can get a million is, pounds off inheritance. Is he tax. falling into the Osborne trap, they'll say? I think what he is looking for, though, is certainly something that speaks to aspiration. And inheritance tax since then has not been an area that's been much touched. As a result, more people are coming into the net. There's a reason why it's one of the most hated taxes. And there's, and it drives the left, I think, mad because they go, come on, only rich people pay this thing. How, 15 how, billion pounds a year. That's a lot of money. The, it's actually only around 7 billion at the moment. Is but it? I thought, why do I think it's 15? It will be 15 in the future. But that is because more and more people are going to be caught in the inheritance tax net. And within 10 years, by the early 2030s, a quarter of all people living in London when they die, are going to have to pay, their estates will pay inheritance tax. So and you're remember, saying that Ed, three quarters of people won't? Yeah. Right. But that's a lot of people. <laughs> like a quarter of the population is a bigger... And that's by the that way... That is the and richest remember, quarter of, 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 of the population is, with it, the biggest houses and the yeah. biggest wealth. And that is why Labour never gets aspiration. It's because the mm. three quarters of the population want to be in a position... Rachel Reeves, I think, has ruled out a, a wealth tax. So, you know. Of course she has, because she's trying to win an election. So inheritance tax is back on the agenda. There's a lot of speculation Rishi Sunak's going to announce it and it's worked for the Tories in the past and it would help create a dividing line with Labour. There's a lot of speculation he might abolish it. Now, given you can already have a family home worth a million pounds and if you're married to someone, pass that on tax-free, of course, this would only benefit the very wealthy. And a million also... pounds because the moment the allowance is 325000 above that you pay 40% tax. But... If you're a married couple, you can put your two allowances together. That gets you to six fifty. How do you get up to a million? Because there's also a hundred and seventy-five thousand pound allowance per person, which can also be transferred if you're passing a home to your children. I see. And that gets you to the magic million number, Ed. So basically, Rishi Sunak is trying to win the election by telling people who've got an estate over a million pounds, he's cutting their taxes. But there are more people than you imagine who are going to fall into that net going forward, as we've discussed. So. That is potentially the big conference announcement. I think it's actually unlikely next week. There's already been speculation that he's not going to make that announcement. But I would be very surprised if the Tories don't say something on inheritance tax between now and the general election. Maybe he saves it for next year's conference, which is the big pre-election conference, or the budget in the autumn of next year, which will set up the general election. So what's election. the big thing he does do next week? And what's his biggest problem well, going into Manchester? Well, going into Manchester, there's a big problem, which is his plans that he dreamt up over the summer and which he gave all these code words to, named after trees like redwood and elm, hawthorn, which were all codes for scrapping HS2 or watering down the green pledges or banning smoking. You know, those things have all leaked, including the code words, which were which were put there. How does the leader's speech leak? That's quite well, unusual. Well, I'm not sure they were going to be in the leader's speech, but they were... He wanted to keep them so secret, he gave them, like, this is what they do in investment banking. You know, they give these projects code words like redwood and cedar and so on, and they've all leaked. So not only the policies have leaked, but the, the special code words to stop them leaking have leaked. And as a result, he's going into the conference with quite a lot of internal Tory party noise about green pledges, HS2 and the like. 
what I think he has to demonstrate, he has to do two things at the conference. He has to show us who is Rishi Sunak. There's a whole thing like, let Rishi be Rishi, which is a bit of a riff on the West Wing, and let Bartlett be Bartlett for West Wing fans. And it's true, I think, that it's not enough just to be the hardworking guy who's the prime minister who's up all hours, who's sober, who's sort of problem solver. We want to have, a leader has to inspire. And this is Rishi Sunak's platform to try and fill in that gap. In Manchester. Well, we'll come on to that in a moment because I think the second thing, and this is very important, it can't just be rhetoric and it can't just be a well-organised conference. There's got to be substantial policy. And I think a big missing gap is is public service policy. You know, where is the education reform? Where is the health reform? Where's the welfare reform? The kind of things you and I would have talked about 10, 15 years ago. It's disappeared from the political battlefield. And that's an opportunity for the governing party to show we're not out of ideas. We may have been in office for 13 years, but we've still got you know petrol in the tank. Of course, it's not ideal that you turn up in Manchester and the thing that everyone's talking about is you're about to scrap the train line just as you're asking everyone to get on the train and come to your conference. He's not going to scrap the train line to Manchester. The train goes from Euston and you can get on it now and get off in Manchester. The issue is HS2, is that going to go from Birmingham to Manchester? And um, there, all getting quite interesting. So what's the mayor of Manchester, Andy Burnham, up to? We'll talk about that next. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back. Now we're going to turn to high-speed rail and uh, and a story which we think is much more important than people have realised in the last couple of days. There's been this big row about whether the government is going to cancel the second leg of HS2 from Birmingham up to Manchester. George, you were with Michael Heseltine in The Times at the beginning of the week saying this would be a terrible thing. Andy Burnham been saying as mayor of Manchester it would be terrible for the north. But then the Financial Times reported that... Um, Andy is open to a discussion about delaying high speed to the link from Birmingham up to Manchester if the government commits to building high speed three, the east-west route, which would go from Liverpool through Manchester to Leeds and then across to the um, eastern side of the north of England. And so Andy Burnham looks like he's waving a bit of a, I'm not sure it's a white flag. He's certainly opening up the possibility of a compromise with Rishi Sunak, maybe also sees the writing on the wall with what Labour might do and is wanting to make sure that he's part of the solution to this problem rather than just fighting from the sidelines. Well, Andy Burnham is very much his own man, as you and I know, and he's been a big supporter of the Northern Powerhouse, but he hasn't always been super enthusiastic about HS2. And I think he is exploring whether he can cut a deal with Rishi Sunak, who's found himself now, I think, in quite a hole because of the leak about the HS2 plans. Can Andy Burnham extract from Rishi Sunak some promise of money for Northern Powerhouse Rail, or HS3, that's the line across the Pennines, and some money for things like buses in Manchester, which, of course, Andy will really care about? I think the Labour 
family in Manchester are not happy with what the mayor's doing. It's quite interesting that the letter he sent to Downing Street was co-signed by the leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig, and I think it's very much a compromise amongst the Labour local government group in Manchester. And I would also warn everyone to be very careful about swapping money now for HS2 for money in the future for HS3. And by the way, I'm a huge advocate of the cross-Pennine route. I was the person who first proposed it. But you know that is a, there is no agreed route for that. Rishi Sunak has made it clear he's not talking about a brand new line. He's talking about upgrading the existing lines. And the most expensive bit of HS2, once you get north of Birmingham, is the bit that goes through Manchester. There's a big tunnel from the airport to Manchester City Centre, to Manchester Piccadilly. That's something Andy Burnham wants as part of this Trans-Pennine route, the HS3. So if you're going to build the most expensive bit of HS2 north of Birmingham, why not build the whole thing? But I think Andy Burnham is seeing the writing on the wall, which is that it looks like the Treasury and Sunak have decided that the costs are overrunning so much. This is not something they want to carry on with. He's thinking to himself that Labour is not going to promise billions of pounds for HS2 if the government is no longer putting the money in the budget. I think also, though, and you said this a moment ago about Andy Burnham's um, prior views about this, I think Andy Burnham is saying, and I strongly think this, that if you think about the economics and the north of England, it's HS3 where the benefits always were. If you, I mean, It's been really hard to get out of um, the government details of where the benefits went. But as I understand it, the benefits substantially accrue to London and to the West Midlands, to a lesser extent to Manchester from high speed too. But the rest of the north of England doesn't really get much benefit at all. It's only when you go for high speed three, which connects the north of England from Liverpool through Manchester, Leeds, across to the eastern part of the north of England, that you start to see the real economic benefits coming through. So this is the agglomeration effect, this is in fact the whole idea behind the Northern Powerhouse. But Ed, you're the economist. Explain agglomeration effects. Well, look, the agglomeration benefits are how, as a city, if you expand and have a bigger labour market and more talent, that drives the kind of economic benefits of your area. And you've seen clearly in London connecting to Reading, to Stevenage, you know, the scale of London as an economy has grown and the benefits have accumulated, have agglomerated. And the problem we have in the north, in Manchester, in Leeds, is because the local transport is so much poorer, the actual labour market for Manchester or Leeds are much smaller. They can't tap into that wider pool of talent. They don't have the scale that they need. And the advantage of High Speed 3 is if you start to connect Manchester... Leads I locally agree, but we, but, those, but, those, but, but those are the agglomeration benefits. Yeah. HS2 never gave you yeah, the same agglomeration. The, the benefits. most expensive bit of HS2, once you get north of Birmingham, is the bit through Manchester, which you have to build anyway. Of course, for HS3. But why spend huge amounts of money connecting Birmingham to Manchester where we've already got a connection? Because when you can spend the same money connecting Leeds yeah, and Liverpool and get the agglomeration, the well, agglomeration benefits, the economics of this comes from making Manchester and Leeds bigger and more connected cities to their localities and to each other. That's what High Speed 3 is all about. So don't throw money at something which is going to give you less benefit when you could use the same money to give you something which is a much bigger benefit. It's not the same money, Ed. So first of all, Rishi Sunak is not proposing that HS3 you're talking about, which connects Liverpool all the way through to Hull. He's actually only proposing to improve the existing Trans-Pennine line. And so Andy Burnham should not fall for that. Second, the most expensive bit of HS3 is the tunnel through Manchester. You have to build that for HS2 as well. Good. So if you're going to do 
HS3, you're building a very expensive bit of HS2. So why not connect to Birmingham? Because we've already built the line to Birmingham from London. And then finally, I'd just make this point, which is you can't talk about long-term investment in the country, the productivity problem, start these big infrastructure projects, let them carry on over several governments, and then just cancel them on a whim. People are not going to invest in this country if there is no certainty about these projects going forward. And I don't always agree with the Bank of England former economist, Andy Haldane, but he said, look, we shouldn't be talking about building HS2 or HS3. We should be doing HS2, HS3, HS4, HS5. You know, We need to invest in the transport infrastructure of this country. We've got agreement now. Why throw it away? Because it's not a whim. It's all about the economic case. And the truth is, the economic case has never been as well established on HS2 as on HS3. And the mistake was to do HS2 before HS3. We should have connected the north of England first, because that is where all the economic agglomeration benefits come from. They don't really come we from Manchester to Birmingham, because... The, um, Ed, we can't the rewrite line, history. We can't. I, HS2 was started five years oh, before HS3. There's a the thing plan you, is there. The route is there. The pound you save on HS2 by cancelling it is not a pound the Treasury is going to let you spend on HS3. And let's be clear, if anyone believes promises from the British government on high-speed rail in the future, if they've just cancelled a big high-speed rail project, then they are really being fools. There's a concept in economics called sunk costs, which says that whatever you spent in the past... The question from today is, where do we get the greater benefit from spending in the future? And if you are spending something which is hugely expensive, overrunning, and doesn't really deliver benefits, which is what I think Rishi Sunak and the Treasury is concluding HS2, the second leg, Birmingham to Manchester, is, then much better just to stop and start spending the money where it will make a difference. And if they spend this money for the next 10 years on HS2 to Manchester, they won't do HS3, the Northern Powerhouse. And I'm saying, do Northern Powerhouse 2. Right. That's what Andy Burnham is saying in this article. Look, if Rishi Sunak won't do that, fine. But that's the deal he's being offered. Here's a, here's a very straightforward political law. If you cancel HS2, HS3 is never, ever going to happen. Well, that is not the deal Andy Burnham's looking for. So we will find out in the coming weeks and months, whether Rishi Sunak is going to deliver the Burnham deal, your plan, or scrap the lot. We'll find out. So on to questions. We've had an amazing response. Thank you so much. Loads of interesting points that people have made. Um, we're going to come back to them in later shows. You can send your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Ed, what's our first question? Our first is a voice note. And uh, amazingly, it's come from Jakarta in Indonesia, from Victor Haggard, one of our international listeners. Hi, George and Ed. Victor here. Great fan of the podcast and very much enjoy your analysis. But if I can, I'd like to put your feet to the fire on what comes next. So could you both share your top three policy prescriptions for the UK economy, but sound bites are strictly verboten, which I know will be difficult for a brown knight in a Cameroon. That means, George, you're not allowed to make slightly abstract entreaties to quote-unquote pro-business policies, and Ed, we need to see what's behind that Green New Deal of yours. Thanks very much. Sorry for the slightly cheeky question. And do keep up the good work. Go on then, George. Do your three. Right. I would, first of all, let university fees increase because one of the jewels in the crown of the British universities and uh, they at the moment are going to be starved of funding if we freeze university fees. Second, I'd devolve all business rates to local areas, really power up devolution across our region. And then I would also put a time limit on planning applications and fine councils who don't give decisions on planning because planning is holding up a huge amount of economic development. So three slightly 
off-the-wall ideas. I don't actually have to get elected, and I am going to be in a university later today, so hopefully this will be broadcast after I've managed to get out. The interesting thing is two of the three of those are about boosting our local regional economies, and I think there's quite a lot to be said for both of those. I would love to give you my three right now, but Victor... As I said last week uh, on the podcast, I've got a paper coming out about regional policy later in October. There I'm going to set out what the practitioners have told us, and then we're going to say after that what we think should be done to really revive local and regional growth in Britain. So I'm afraid you're going to have to wait for my manifesto. You sound just like Rishi Zunak. Well, what I'm not going to do is tell you kind of what they are and then not actually announce them. I'm going to wait until I know what I'm talking about and I'm ready, and then I will actually deliver. No HS2 waffle and prevarication from me. This next one's from James Hogarth. Hi, George and Ed. Why would the Bank of England increase interest rates to cool inflation rather than put pressure on the government to, say, temporarily increase VAT? This would surely have had more of an immediate effect to raise money into the government coffers and would cool spending in the economy across all groups. Thanks, James. Well, look, we know with VAT, if you want to put money into the economy or take it out, it's quite powerful. George put VAT up um, when he became Chancellor in the years before Alistair Darling had a temporary cut to take money out. If you're trying to change behaviour, it's a bit more complicated. First of all, if you put VAT up, that's actually going to, in the short term, increase inflation rather than decrease it, because that goes into the measures of inflation. Secondly, if you're trying to cool down the housing market, the problem is that VAT tends to have a lesser impact upon construction, new house building, all those areas. And thirdly, you don't know if people are going to respond by spending less or whether they're just going to draw down their savings in order to keep spending the same amount, which wouldn't have an impact upon demand in the economy. So the problem is, if you're trying to manage the economy and manage inflation, VAT is much, much harder to do. That's why interest rates is a much better way to but do doesn't it. Doesn't this go back? This goes back to Nigel Lawson's famous Mace lecture, where he set out in the 1980s, it was quite a departure from the past, that monetary policy, interest rates, should be used to control demand. And fiscal policy, taxes, were all about changes you wanted to make to the structure of the economy and to improve productivity. And of course, giving the bank independence, thanks to your idea, Ed, really established that demand control was in the hands of the Bank of England. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have some kind of coordination, in my view, between the independent bank and the elected government. But the tools of demand are really in the bank's hands. And of course, there's always a danger that if the government is supposed to do this and they prevaricate and then duck the decision, then nothing happens. Whereas the advantage of the Independent Bank of England is that every month at the Monetary Policy Committee, the Committee of Nine have got to act. They've got an instrument to meet the inflation target. So at least, you know, with independence, the decisions will be taken rather than postponed. So there we are, James. Really good question. Our final question this week is for you, George. It's from Oliver Amos. Dear George, is it true that you once got into a fight with Boris Johnson in a lift on a Beijing trip in 2013? And if so, who won? And also, what's your relationship with Boris Johnson like now? All the best, Oliver. Uh, thanks, Oliver. Do you know, I, I, I've never really thought of you as a fighter, to be honest. You know, if George Osborne were a, you know, if you said I did jujitsu, then I might, I might understand it. Or um, if you'd been taught karate by William Hague, but like fist fighting with Boris Johnson, really? 
I did do judo classes for about three months when I was seven years old. There you but are. The, I knew it. I could just see it. You know, I've read about this fight. And I think... It what do you mean you true. read about it? it well, you were in it. Yes. Well, that's what I can't remember. And I think I would remember because I've managed to avoid having a fight ever since I left school. And it's meant to have happened at a place, not in Beijing, actually, but in uh, Hong Kong. There's a restaurant there called the China Club. And I read that I'd had a fight with Boris in uh, the lift going down. I do not, I promise you, do not think I did. I have, however, been in a tug of war with Boris at his home in Oxfordshire. He had a country house. For fun. And, and yet he, well, he had a particular version of a tug of war, which tells you a lot about Boris. So he ties the rope around your waist and then he tied the rope around his own waist. And then we stood on either side of a swimming pool or his swimming pool. And we also had, uh, by the way, our two sons were involved in this. And Whoever lost the tug of war was pulled into the pools. <laughs> it was it was a very uh, you know. And did you have to wear white tie and drink champagne while this was happening? That was another occasion with <laughs> Boris Johnson. No, never done that with Boris Johnson. Should make that absolutely clear. What's my relationship with him now? Uh, I would say it's civil. We're not as friendly. We were back in the day, back when we were trying to get elected, we were trying to get him elected mayor of London. We were good friends, uh, but uh, unfortunately. Lots of things have intervened since then. Do you remember back in 2017 in the election campaign, he was doing an interview, was it in the spin room with Andrew Gwynn and the two of them were together. Andrew Gwynn was the Labour mm. campaign spokesman and Boris kind of started to rough him up live on camera. Do you remember? There's something about Boris which quite gets physical. quite physical at certain see, moments. He did, I saw a, almost a fight with him and David Cameron. When, almost. Well, David Cameron, he came in, Boris was Mayor of London, David Cameron was Prime Minister, sat down in the cabinet room and David Cameron just grabbed from him the briefing note that Boris had for the meeting and said, come on, let's see what you're going to be asking me about. Boris really took offence to this and sort of physically lunged to get the note back and there was almost fisticuffs, but uh, it was avoided. My own personal theory of Boris Johnson's political career is he would have had an even more successful career and would have been the Prime Minister and probably been Prime Minister for much longer if he had not made that historic breach with the Cameron government over Brexit and done the Faustian pact with the Tory right, uh, then I think he might well have succeeded David Cameron rather than me and uh, would have been Prime Minister for a lot longer. But does there we go. That's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a kind of what if. When you think of that, does it make you want to give him a good slap? There's quite a few times where I, I, don't, I don't hit people. Right. I find other ways to get, since, get my revenge. Since you were at school, God knows what happened then. There we are. Thanks for all your questions. We've loved reading them. Actually quite enjoyed answering them as well. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with questions and comments by um, emailing us questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk or by sending us a message on our socials, which you'll find at Poll Currency or on YouTube, where you can watch extended clips of the show. That's all for this week. We will see you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.